Welcome to Talking Robots, the podcast with an inside view on the science, technology, and business of intelligent robotics. Hi, I'm Sabine Howard from the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems at the EPFL in Lausanne, Switzerland. Today we'll be talking to Professor Yasuo Kuniyoshi, who is the head of the Laboratory of Intelligent Systems and Informatics at the University of Tokyo. For the past 10 years, he has been working on demonstrating that cognition is not dissociable from body-environment interactions. By confronting his human-sized humanoids to their environment, he shows that lifting a heavy object or performing some acrobatic moves becomes a piece of cake. With a pinch of chaos theory and a baby-sized humanoid, he attempts to show how embodied cognition might explain a lot about the way babies move and develop. Yasuo Kuniyoshi's research interests include emergence and development of embodied cognition, human action understanding systems, and humanoid robotics. Hi Yasuo, welcome to Talking Robots. Hi. Since 1994, one of your main research areas has concentrated on understanding and demonstrating the emergence of embodied cognition. So what is embodied cognition? Embodied cognition means uh, your mind, your intelligence uh, is inseparable from your body and environment and... uh, it actually exploits the property of the body, exploits the way the body interacts with the environment. Uh, and that's, these are the fundamental assumptions of embodied cognitions. And why isn't it possible to separate the cognition from the body-environment interactions? Well, um, in, in a sense, we haven't solved, you know, we don't have the answer yet. But... Uh, there is a way to answer the question. Um, throughout the evolution, the organization of nervous systems and the, the body, the physical body and sensory organs, uh, all are like uh, progressed in uh, accordance. You know, they they evolved together. So it's really natural to expect that uh, the nervous system relies on the property of the body and way, how, how it interacts with the environment. So in one of your first papers in 1994, you explained that a robot can learn to achieve certain tasks by watching a human doing it beforehand. Mm-hmm. So can you give us uh, an insight as to what the experimental setup was, what your robot was? Well, what it, what it did is, well, the setup is that... Uh, First, you have a, a table with blocks, and a, a human a performer a, builds some structure using blocks and a TV cameras. Actually, there were three TV cameras, two for stereo uh, and binocular stereo, one for zoom-up. And these TV cameras are connected to the computer, and uh, it observes, recognizes human actions. And then it uh, uh, sort of builds a symbolic representation of the task structure. And then there is another table with a a single robot arm uh, with the the same set of objects. And uh, the robot... uh, 
after recognizing human tasks, the ro- robot uh, mo- moves to uh, manipulate the object to copy the task of the humans. But the problem is that uh, the initial arrangement of the blocks is different. I mean, the, the placement is different from the presentation. So the system has to figure out the sort of meaningful uh, uh, units of actions and reinstantiate to the new situation. So what did this teach you on the level of cognition? Uh, I did this work because at that time, um, how do I say, um, the, the main motivation of this work was to uh, investigate the how we can construct a robot that can uh, interact with humans and learn from humans and connect that with physical actions. Um, so why is this interesting? We could just pre-program these tasks in the robot. Um, well, it, it's... It's so obvious that if you want a robots to to be able to work in uh, everyday situations in your home or uh, offices or anywhere now uh, and particularly serving humans uh, humans are really you know arbitrary um, uh, things and um, people ask various things. And the environment is unstructured. You you cannot expect uh, to be prescribed the environment we, to be really nicely uh, designed uh, to the specifications or things like that. So uh, you really need uh, adaptive systems uh, and also the capability to learn from humans um, novel tasks and so on. Yeah. So from the single robotic arm used in your previous experiment, you went on to real-size humanoid robots. What does your humanoid look like? What are its features? Well, our humanoid robot uh, is uh, 1.55 meter high, tall, and uh, the weight is about 70 kilos. Uh, it's covered with a white uh, soft skin. And it's uh, slightly um slightly maybe uh on a on a thick side uh and the, because it is capable of really highly dynamic uh motion uh, and also the the contact motion with arbitrary uh posture uh and that's why the our robot uh has really smooth uh outer outer sh- uh, surface so that the robot can uh, do the contact motion uh, with the environment. On March 28, just recently, you, you had a demonstration in Tokyo with this humanoid robot, and it was capable of lifting a, a laundry basket, which was 30 kilos, and also of lifting a humanoid doll, which was 60 kilos. And this is really huge compared to what typical robotic systems can lift in comparison to their own weight. So can you explain how it used the environment to achieve such a complex right. task? Um, so, first of all, uh, 
maybe for for uh, non-roboticists, it may be count, counterintuitive that the robots um, cannot lift heavy things, but actually it's the case, and this is because uh, of the limitation of the of the uh, dimensions. Uh, and also the consideration about safety and things like that. You cannot install huge uh, power motors and things like that. Now, what we did is is not the issue of uh, installing powerful motors, but uh, devising a clever strategy to exploit the environmental constraints and things like that, or or devising clever coordinations of the entire body to perform the task. So to lift heavy objects, the robot uh, uh, touches the, for example, the table, the edge of the table uh, with a waist, uh, uh, sensing the contact with the tactile sensor, and uh, then use, exploit the contact to support its body, and also uh, use it as a, uh, you know, exploit the lever principle, you know, uh, so that the, it, it can lift object or manipulate object uh, with less uh, power. So another complex task you achieved using a humanoid robot was the roll and rise motion. So let me just quickly explain what that is. So imagine you're lying on the ground and first you lift your legs up to the back, that way you roll backwards, and then using that momentum you roll back forwards, and this allows you to come up to your feet. So this is also a very complicated task for a humanoid robot to achieve. What was the motivation behind this experiment? Mm -hmm. Well, the ma major motivation was to investigate uh, the effect of body properties on, on uh, generating behaviors. Um, so, in, to achieve this task, uh, if you formulate the task uh, within the uh, proper robotics uh, framework, uh, yes, you, you write up uh, differential equations and all these. This particular task involves a lot of uh, contacts, uh, contact motion with the ground, and uh, it Modeling contact is uh, really tricky, and uh, uh, you cannot really precisely model it. And moreover, it, this is uh, called an uh, uh, under-actuated system, where uh, you do not have direct control over uh, the uh, posture while you're rolling. You know, you only need to, you only can control your body by just indirectly. Uh, swinging the leg and things like that. So, uh, if you're familiar with the control theory, this is known as uh, unsolvable. You know, uh, the you cannot integrate the uh, equation to come up with a solution. But the if you if you look at the task, uh, it's it's straightforward. You know, humans can do that. Uh, even if you haven't experienced, you can do it after a few trials. The question is why? Uh, is there any way to control the uh, generate this kind of a rather complicated uh, situation without precisely uh, defining the traject entire trajectory of the motion and things like that? Now we investigated human strategy 
using motion capture and things like that, what we found is that human strategy is uh, that they, we only focus on important points during the task, and we do, we do not precisely control other parts. So the, these important points we call the um, necks, uh, like getting the neck of doing something. <clears throat> and uh, it's not uh, only the, the intuitive thing, but uh, we, we carried out analysis uh, of the, this. Uh, we made a you know, the mathematical model of this uh, physical situation and analyzed, and we actually found out that uh, for this task to be su successful, you really have to clear a very severe condition, you know, very narrow condition at certain points in the task. But in other parts, uh, there are a lot of margin. So uh, humans are sort of uh, intuitively know this kind of structure in nonlinear non dynamics and exploit that. And <clears throat> so we uh, applied this uh, principle to the robotic motion and uh, the, our humanoid could achieve that task. Can you give us an example in the roll and rise motion of one of these critical conditions to be met? Right, okay. Uh, the, the most critical condition is when uh, the robot, the support uh, point shifts from the hip to the, to the feet. Uh, this is the, the really critical condition. And uh, you have to have exactly the right posture at exactly the right timing. So these knacks are used to achieve a certain task. Can we also look at these knacks and transform it into focuses that we observe to better recognize a certain sure. movement? Um, <clears throat> so we, we carried out a series of psychological experiments with the human subjects. What we did is uh, uh, took a movie of uh, a human performer performing this uh, roll and rise task and then uh, uh, set up an experiment uh, investigating uh, during the time course of the movie when uh, people got the most information. And we revealed that uh, uh, actually this uh, critical point where the shift uh, supporting point shifts from hip to the feet, that's uh, where the people get the most information about the success or failure of the task. Could this be used like in the previous question that I asked for action imitation in yes, the future? Yes, exactly. So the, the whole point of this uh, investigation is to, to show that, to reveal that actually the important information about, uh, yeah, about an action is... Uh, is the same for performing the action and observing, recognizing the action. And that uh, uh, is sort of, de that is de determined by the sort of a, uh, property of the body. So in the preceding experiment, the robot could not autonomously explore the movements needed to achieve the roll and rise task. 
How would it be possible for a robot to learn how its own body works and learn the movement that it's capable of doing? So basically, you've been doing this using chaos theory. Can you explain? And I know it's difficult. In a nutshell, what chaos theory is? Uh, <clears throat> first, uh, at, this, at this stage, uh, our chaos-based uh, uh, learning system, I mean, it's not a learning, but chaos-based exploration system uh, does not deal with the roll and rise motion particular, but uh, uh, our system explores a uh, sort of wide range of uh, possible behaviors that that exploits the body properties. Now, uh, chaos function is uh, uh, sort of a, a nonlinear uh, uh, differential equation or, or, or difference equations which uh, evolves over time and uh, yields uh, uh, non non periodic um, signal uh, and it can be really complex it is a really complex signal and um, <clears throat> but w what is uh, important here is that we uh, employed uh, many of such functions and these functions are like uh, you know because it's a difference equations uh, uh, you feed time t value and then it uh, goes through the function and then yields the t plus one value <coughs> and then you uh, iterate this process and yields the time series now um, there is a model uh, known as a globally coupled model, and uh, which is in which uh, the many chaotic uh, maps are uh, connected. The outputs are summed together, uh, gets averaged, and then fed back to the to the maps as the next time step input. Okay, so in this case. Uh, qualitatively speaking, if uh, on one hand chaos uh, uh, time series are like uh, it's a famous that you know the butterfly effect, uh, only the slight difference in the initial conditions can can exponentially uh, uh, gets bigger and bigger, and uh, two time series uh, starts to to be very different very quickly. So this is the effect that uh, the elements tend to be, uh, you know, tend to be very independent. <clears throat> but there is this averaging uh, pro uh, operation which forces the values to, to take the same value, right? So there is this uh, competition of two opposing um, power which results in uh, very complex uh, but interesting uh, structures like uh, uh, partial coordination of some of, you know, the, the elements make several groups which are synchronized and uh, uh, or uh, sometimes everything gets synchronized or some, sometimes everything gets uh, chaotic. Do you have a concrete example of how we can do control with chaos theory? Okay, so um, we hooked up the chaos uh, functions to 
sensors and motors of a multi-degrees of freedom robot, uh, which means uh, the robot with many sensors and many motors. Okay? When we do that, <coughs> each chaos uh, map, the chaos signals are, gets mixed together through the physical process uh, because the signal uh, turns in, gets turned into a physical value by the motor and then it affects the physical state of the body and then it, it, it is sensed by each sensor, right? So the, here is a very complex uh, interaction takes place, but also it's, it gets reflected the, the body environment interactions. And we can expect that because of the characteristic of this uh, coupled chaotic system, we can expect that uh, various coordination of uh, the, uh, the joints, you know, uh, will emerge, reflecting the uh, body environment interaction characteristics. So, uh, if we let the system run, it sort of spontaneously explores all uh, various possible way to move, but it gets uh, sort of resonates and in uh, consistent motion, which. Uh, which is like exploiting the body environment dynamics. One of the examples would be if you apply a joint with muscles, <clears throat> the the system will start to uh, find, uh, will immediately find uh, the uh, sort of oscillation, oscillatory move, movement, uh, which matches the intrinsic uh, uh, resonance fre frequency. Another example is uh, uh, insect-like structure. We designed a ro uh, robotic body uh, with 12 legs in simulation, and uh, we connected chaos element to each of the legs. And uh, without any uh, uh, built-in circuitry for coordinating the, the legs, the creatures started to walk in particular directions, and which requires uh, proper coordination of these legs. And this, the the way it, the legs are coordinated is purely emergent. Using this chaos field principle, you recently looked into her early human motor developments by simulating the body the basic nervous system, and the uterus environment of an unborn fetus. Can you explain your experiments? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so, we are investigating um, how uh, neural system or how, how the neural body system can uh, emerge various meaningful behaviors. And... Uh, uh, what we did is to first uh, build a simulation model of a uh, baby body, uh, uh, which is a musculoskeletal system. Uh, it has uh, 200 muscles, and we omit the, the details like fingers and facial muscles. But most, we mostly uh, simulate the major uh, primary limb muscles and trunk muscles. 
and we designed the uh, body uh, parameters like dimensions or mass inertia uh, as cl- as uh, precise as possible to the uh, f- fetuses and newborns. Um, and the model has a, a parameter called weak age. So if you set the the weak age, uh, uh, then the the model, all the parameters of the model, including the muscle strength and things like that, is uh, set properly. If you change the weak age, uh, you can sort of simulate the body growth. Now, then we uh, built a simulation model of a neural central nervous system, including the the. Um, uh, along with the, the muscle uh, sensory organs like uh, spindles and uh, tendon, tendon organs, which sense the uh, state of the muscle. Uh, we modeled the spinal circuit. <clears throat> uh, we, here we took the minimalist approach. So that we, what we wanted to do is how little we can start and uh, still... Uh, can observe uh, meaningful behavior. So what we did is just in, uh, to uh, implement uh, the stretch reflex. The stretch reflex is uh, is a muscle by muscle level. Uh, if you uh, stretch a muscle, muscle contracts. That's a stretch reflex, uh, and it's a spinal circuit. Um, it's it's. Just just about that, that we have a pre-built circuit. Now, we also have a medulla model, a model with a CPG uh, circuitry. CPG is uh, short for Central Pattern Generator. Uh, <clears throat> it's basically a nonlinear oscillator. Uh, so it, there are uh, lots of biological evidences that uh, uh, in animals and humans, we have such oscillators in neural circuitry. Now, this medular CPG model, uh, under certain condition, it generates a chaotic uh, signals. So uh, we see here some analogy with our previous experiment with chaotic exploration of embodied behaviors. So uh, we assume that this will the medial circuit will play the role of driving the body for exploring what it can do. Um, then we also built the model of cortical circuitry. Uh, uh, we just modeled the, the primary sensory and motor cortex uh, as self-organizing neural network. And we built the uh, left side uh, uh, circuit, nervous circuitry and right, high, right hand side uh, nervous circuitry and then connected with Copper's callosum model. All the connections are continuously learning and also the cortical map is self-organizing and we uh, put the this simulated baby uh, in an envir- two kinds of environment. One is a fetal environment we simulate the utero, uterine wall uh, with a spring system and uh, is filled with liquid. Uh, we simulate the viscous uh, uh, resistance force. 
einen brilliant force. That's the fetal environment. And also we have a newborn environment with just flat land with fences so that it doesn't escape. Now we let the system go. We started to, the system started to do interesting behaviors uh, in fetus environment, uh, started to uh, coordinate uh, uh, various limb movements. Uh, particularly uh, characteristic was the coordination between neck and leg motions. Uh, and, it's, it's, you know, it kicks the wall of the uterine wall. Um, in the newborn uh, experiment, uh, we we were amazed to see that uh, it spontaneously started to roll uh, on the sides, and then uh, even started to, to seeming like crawling motion, not quite moving forward, but uh, 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 taking a crawling posture and swinging and then moving the legs so that as if it wanted to crawl forward. Remember that there was, there's absolutely no uh, built-in circuitry for coordinating different limbs. It's purely emergent. And, but uh, I think it's natural to, to be able to see such uh, crawling or rolling motion because because uh, it's the property of the body that the body uh, shape the the resting position of the, all the muscles. Uh, if you consider this, it's so natural to take, uh, uh, for example, crawling posture. And once you do that, you know, you know, your body naturally support uh, this, you know, oscillatory motion, which uh, easily leads to crawling motion. So let's look a little bit into the future now. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the most promising areas of research in humanoid robotics in the next 20 years? Well, um, it's a very tough question. First, uh, for for humanoid to be uh, to be any uh, performing any any meaningful task in in real world, first we definitely need. Uh, uh, Methodology to make it more adaptive, flexible, <clears throat> um, and also uh, we. Uh, what what's the reason of for a robot to take the form of humans? You know, so the most promising area of application would be uh, to help humans in a very close. Uh, you know, vicinity of humans, even uh, including uh, contacts like uh, helping uh, people who have uh, difficulty in moving by themselves, uh, helping them to to move from here to there, or uh, help people uh, uh, carry around uh, objects for them. Um, they, these they, you know uh, behaviors tasks in human vicinity is is the way to go for humanoids, and for that 
you have the system have to be have to accommodate uh, a range of capabilities from physical performance and and, and versatile adaptivity and also the the capability to to understand the human intentions uh emotional states these are really crucial that that so that the robots do do what the humans want want them to do and uh not offending humans and you know these are really important things what are the main challenges that need to be met for this to happen um in all all levels it's it's all challenging uh physical performance is not enough uh current robots uh cannot do uh, much you know compared to real humans and for that we i think we have to come up with a, a very new paradigm which can uh, automatically find the way to exploit the body property to do uh, various tasks. Also, uh, it's a hot issue in, in cognitive science and intelligent robots that how we can uh, implement a model or, or evolve a model uh, that can... Uh, in a robot that can understand hum what humans are thinking or, or human intentions. Uh, <clears throat> these issues are, are related to uh, psychological issues like or brain science issues called the uh, theory of mind, which basically means uh, the model that you have in your mind about the mind of somebody else. Uh, there is intensive work going on to uh, uh, come up with a, the sort of uh, computational model that accounts for this functionality. And personally, I am very much interested in how we can uh, uh, how we can devise a model that develops through interaction with humans to achieve the, this capability. Now in all areas of robotics, where do you see the biggest potential? Where do you think the biggest advances will be made? Um, I don't know. I, I can't say when, but uh, I can sense that uh, a big shift may happen soon, sooner or later, in, how do I say in, in in just saying just a word uh in a very biological way of building robots you know the everything may shift towards that direction uh from the physical construction you know the components and the material and all these uh like artificial muscles and things like that and also the the modeling of the control structures uh, can be uh, based on a, a deep understanding of biological nervous systems and uh, principles like emergent uh, embodied behavior and things like that. I think pieces are now coming together. Still, we it's uh, major breakthroughs are required, but I think the vectors are pointing towards a uh, new form of robots, which 
is based on really biological principles. And that will be really uh, not... There are works like biologically inspired robots in the past, but what I'm talking about will be the real scale robots that, that performs tasks in real world. So last question. 20 years from now, in which fields will robotics have had the biggest impact in our lives? Um, I don't know. Well, I think serving human life, supporting humans, will be the biggest field. Okay. Thanks, Yasuo. Thanks for being with us on Talking Robots. Thank you. This concludes this episode of Talking Robots with Yasuo Kuniyoshi on embodied cognition and humanoids. Hope to see you in two weeks. Until then, you can have a look at our website at lis.epfl.ch. Talking Robots, the inside view on robotics. For more information on past and upcoming podcasts, visit our website at lis.epfl.ch.